is David Carter, principal of the Sports Business Group and associate professor of sports business at USC. And you're listening to From the Heart with Ed Hart, presented by Orange Kiwi. Thank you, Dave. It's really good to see you. I met Dave, I worked at USC, as a lot of you may know, because I've talked about it before, um, about, well, 2007 to 2011. And as you know, I'm also a sports junkie. So when I heard there was this thing called the Sports Business Institute or Sports Business Group, I obviously had to look into it and get more involved in it. Um, then a lot of my mutual, our mutual friends knew, knew David Carter, knew me. So we met and uh, I, I think uh, if you ask me anyway, we've been friends ever since. David may have a different uh, perspective on that, but I, I think he might agree with that. Um, he's a national authority on sports business um, and strategic marketing. He's the author of four books. I'd love to talk, talk about those a little bit today, uh, having to do with the sports business industry uh, he founded the Sports Business Group in 1999, following more than 10 years of consulting for the sports and entertainment industry. Um, as a sports business consultant, I'm just reading here. For those that are listening, I'm reading. For those that are watching on YouTube, that's why you don't see my eyes. I'm, I'm, I'm just reading here for a moment. As a sports business consultant specializing in strategic marketing, Professor Carter has consulted for corporations, sports organizations, sports and entertainment venues, law firms, municipalities, and individual athletes. He regularly provides sports business commentary to national media concerns. If you read anything in Sports Business Journal or other publications having to do with the business of sport, there's a pretty good chance you've seen David Carter's name at some point. Uh, he hosted for years, and I'd love to catch up on that, a, a commissioner series at USC, which has brought in the, the top commissioners from major sports and NCAA and others, and, and uh, very well dialed into the sports and sports business industry. So David Carter, good to see you, my friend. How have you been? Great. I was getting a little concerned that you're never going to invite me to one of your podcasts. So I'm happy to be here with you, Ed, as always. Well, it's great to see you. It's, uh, normally when we get together, it's social, and that's coming again really soon. I think it's already even on our calendar. Um, so I introduce you as an expert in sports business. I, I, I worked in sports for three years. I, I have taught a sports leadership class for five or six years. I'm nowhere near what anybody would call a sports business expert. How does one become a sports business expert. I love it here. Just I don't really know your background and how you got to where you are today. Well, I don't know that uh, I am a sports business expert, so I'd encourage you to go out and do some research and find somebody that can give you a great answer to that. I think, uh, like most people's careers, where you end up isn't necessarily where you began and where you thought you would end up. And uh, it's just been an evolution or maybe a de-evolution for me to get to this point where uh, I am very fortunate to be able to consult and teach and, uh, and, and really keep an eye on what's going on in the industry. Did you get, uh, you obviously grew up loving sports or I think you probably wouldn't have gone where you are in your career. Um, I love your, your combination of sports and education. I think that's one of the reasons why you and I get along so well as we both have those passions. And I know you're more on the business side of sports. I'm probably more of the fan, um, but I'd love to hear more about just Anybody that maybe influenced you growing up, uh, uh, a family member, a coach, somebody that inspired you to say, you know, I really want to get into, into education, teaching, and, and have the angle in sports. Well, it was a little bit different than that, and, and I appreciate the, the way you positioned it. I, when I was growing up, I think like most kids, you, you really like sports. Uh, by the time I was in college, I was much more intrigued by the amount of money mm -hmm. to it. And if, if you're attached to, you know, having gone to USC uh, and been a part of the business school and you realize that the role of the, of the entertainment industry, the role of real estate, the role of engineering in Southern California, uh, it seemed like an opportunity to develop some sort of sports 
curriculum, whatever that would be. I had no idea what that would be at the time. And what I tried to do was uh, offer up a, an initial class. They brought me on as a trial instructor. And, and I found that, that it helped me, to this day it still helps me, build my consulting business. And my consulting is enhanced because I'm in an educational environment at a very high level at USC, uh, one of the top programs around. And so they've always been very symbiotic for, uh, for my career. And, and you know, by the way, for me personally, the variety is outstanding. A little bit of time in the classroom, a little bit of time as an expert witness, a little bit of time consulting or sitting on boards. And so every day is quite different. And that's, that's really what I like about it the most. Yeah. Anything stand out to you? Any, you talked about, I, I know you can't divulge like details of cases and so forth, but are, were there ever any moments where you're, you know, maybe you're being an expert witness or you're talking to somebody about some big case, you know, I use the word case. I don't mean that in a legal term necessarily, um, where you thought, wow, I, I'm, I can't believe I'm doing this for a living because you know you one thing I know about you is you're passionate about what you do and you're happy and most passionate happy people probably have that moment in their career where they think I can't believe I, I get to do this for a living yeah you know what, what I'm reminded about it the most Ed is from uh, guys like you and other men and women out there that are big sports fans that uh, they think it's great that I get to see behind the curtain and they're very curious about it but it's like anything else any other job or career if you're in it every day, you probably lose your, in my case, you lose your fandom, which I have not had for uh, a very long time. And I think part of that is you're in something day to day, 24 seven, the industry never stops, never sleeps. Uh, um, it's kind of the first part of it that, that there are no parameters, there are no guide rails every day or on weekends, it doesn't stop. And, and I think, you know, because of that, uh, you have to build up some sort of tolerance for when to turn it off, when to stop following, and quite literally, at the end of the day of working in it all day, morning till evening, the idea of getting in the car and driving to Staples Center or doing something else sports related, hitting a Dodger game, uh, is just mostly untenable. I mean, you've been doing it for you know, eight, 10 hours, and now you can go door to door another five hours to an event and get up and do it again. So I think there have been a lot of reasons why the fandom has fallen away. And, and I sense in talking to colleagues that that's largely the case for them as well. Yeah, I actually worked in sports, as I mentioned, for a few years. And I'll tell you, when I got out of it and I was just a fan again, it was so nice to just go to a game and just sit and watch a team and just be a fan of the game. You know, when you're working in it, like it's kind of to your point, I think, I don't know how you are, but when I go to a ball game, I'll just use baseball because that's my passion. I'll sit at Dodger Stadium or at a minor league baseball game or angel game or what have you. When I was working in the game, and I would I would start really assessing, you know, why are the concessionaires doing this? Why are they doing that? And I'd be saying, spending more time looking at and thinking about the business of the game. Now just being a fan again is, is a lot of fun. So, yeah. yeah. I would imagine you and I are about the two worst people in the world to go to a sporting event with if someone really wants to enjoy the game because we're <laughs> commenting on the concession prices and how slow the parking line is. And, yeah. oh, my God, that guy's getting paid X and he's not performing. And, you know, kind of the proverbial buzzkill. So, yeah. uh, we probably aren't at, uh, at the top of many lists to, to attend a game. But I want to go back to something you mentioned um, uh, a moment or two ago, which was a little bit about mentors. And, and, and one of them uh, was the gentleman who really gave me my start. And I am still in touch with him to this day. I was a sophomore at USC as an undergrad. Uh, and so that was a long time ago. That was a call in 1984, 1985. And uh, through a, a brokerage house, a financial services institution in Palos Verdes. And he gave me a shot. And he was investing and working with some sports agents on 
athlete portfolios and financial management. And, and I really thought that was interesting because I could tell that the contracts were starting to, to rapidly increase coming off the 84 Olympics. Sponsorship was big. Advertising on TV was uh, equally charged at that point. And, um, and so he gave me a shot and, and here we are basically 35 years later, he and I are still in touch. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and that's what I love too. The mentors in my life, the same thing. I mean, I've got a lot of people that come in and out of my life now that are really important and great friends and they mentor me on certain things, but my high school baseball coach, I mean, I was 1982, my senior year in high school and I played only one year of varsity. So I was only on his team one year. I mean, I knew him all four years, but I was only on the team one year and I was hurt. So I, never, I didn't play. I think I'd won at bat all year. Um, I asked him when I got hurt, how can I get involved? And, and he offered to have me be his third base coach. And so even though I was an 18 year old kid, who was just another guy on the team and probably the lowest, you know, you know, as far as talent was concerned on a really, really good high school baseball team. Coach Martin took me under his, his wing and just taught me and mentored me. And to this day, I still stay in touch with him. He's 80 something years old, lives up in Chico. And, and I've visited with him several times and, you know, literally just a few months of my life day to day with that man has, has changed my life. And, um, and it's not because I needed a father figure. My dad's 93 and still around and my greatest mentor, but something about that coach that just really took an interest in me. And, and really, I think that's where he taught me the game because he was just a magnificent coach. Well, I think there's a lot of comfort in somebody like that. And, and I think nobody has ever uh, done needing guidance or advice or a shoulder or what have you and be able to turn to someone with no holds barred and just you know, have, a, have a great conversation uh, remains super important. I think even these days, it's even more important for a lot of folks. Yeah. So about three or four months ago, we're sitting here, you know, halfway into where we are currently in this, this COVID pandemic. I, I have to go there because, you know, as you and I were talking before we started this interview and we've talked before, and I'm sure we will again, um, three or four months ago, I personally didn't think we were going to see any kind of sports in 2020. I mean, it looked like everything was closing down. I think I spoke with you probably about the time that the Golden State Warriors were thinking about maybe playing a game in an empty arena. And that went from literally that conversation to within 24 hours, everything was kind of down. Um, what do you think, I mean, there's so many questions I could go to, but the one that I really wanted to you know, focus in on with you because of your background and expertise, what do you think the long-term impact and maybe pick a sport or all sports, or is there one that you think is more resilient and will do better than maybe another. For example, I think golf on an empty golf course is actually kind of cool. Uh, when I watch the Masters coming up in November, I'm watching that for the golf course anyway. Certainly the roar of the crowd and all that is really awesome. And I think that's why maybe ratings are way down in the NBA for the finals. I saw a number the other day that said maybe like 5 million people watched the Laker Heat game the other night as opposed to you know 20 or so million in previous years. Do you think there's a sport that's more resilient or less? And what do you, going back to my first question, what do you think the long-term impact on the sports industry in general will be because of this year? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. You do have to answer the first one uh, that you posed, and, and that is where does it end up? And I'm fortunate right now, I'm, I'm doing some consulting work for one of the four major sports leagues, uh, uh, corporate offices, and I'm also consulting for an individual NBA franchise, uh, as well as an investment bank that specializes in uh, sports-related transactions like buying and selling franchises. And, and so even from just those vantage points and just what I pick up on talking to colleagues, my concern 
that I started to notice about a month or six weeks ago, and this goes to your NBA TV ratings question, is I, I believe fundamentally when sports comes back, it's going to settle in at a lower level. Demand is going to be going to be substantially lower. So let's say before COVID on a scale of one to 10, demand for sports from fans was a nine. Yeah. Well, now everybody has a lot more going on in their lives. The, the privileged position that sports had in our society, our culture with families, et cetera, I think has been diminished for a variety of reasons that we can also talk about. And I think when it bounces back, it might bounce back to a seven. And I just don't see, you know, yes, there's some sports and some pockets of the country and elsewhere that are clamoring for it. But this overall thought that sports was appointment television. When do I get a ticket for a game? Again, forgetting health issues for a moment. Sure. Uh, the, the demand is going to come back. It's going to be a lot more tepid. And I think you have to also realize you and I are generally talking about demand for sport from fans, guys like you. What about the corporate fan? They might be more reluctant to come back and spend. And so when we talk about demand for sport, it's not just what I call the face painters, but it's the corporate crowd. And if that's a one-two punch, if they're both slow to come back. And, and so I sense that there's going to be a, a prolonged time frame before we even get to that seven, let alone maybe an eight. And those sports that I think do well are clearly those that aren't reliant on anything turnstile related. They're not you know, worried about ticket sales the way baseball and Major League Soccer and some other sports are. You know, NFL being the greatest example of being able to survive without fans in the stands and still bring in a tremendous amount of money. Tickets are important, but relatively less important amount of revenue for NFL. Uh, again, for other sports, they're vital. And so if you take a look at uh, indoor sports versus outdoor sports, we'll see what happens with hockey and when that comes back and, and how many people really want to participate in a partial season ticket. And so you can't, you know, there's not a, a single response by sport your outdoor time of year, um, you know, golf perhaps, as you mentioned, is, is going to be resilient, but you know, um, what is the, the net upside to a sport like golf? I think all those things have to be weighed into account. What about for you personally? I mean, what are you finding? I know the sports fan of David Carter, you're, you're, as we alluded to earlier, it's hard when you're in the business to really just kind of put the fan hat on. I know you well enough to know that there is some fandom in you in sports because we've talked about that before. Is there one sport that now that, because everything's back, you know, baseball's in the playoffs, basketball's in the finals, hockey just ended, soccer's going, NFL's going. Is there a sport that for you personally, you're just like, I, I'll use the word rooting because we're on sports. Is there one that you really um, either worry about the most or are just really glad it's back and it's like, I'm so glad this is really going? Well, we'll probably talk about this later. The only sporting events I really care about, Ed, are those that are on my global bucket list. And yeah. so those are the ones I'm really concerned with. The garden yeah. variety basketball game or college football game, not so much, but something big around the world, absolutely can't wait. So I, I do view it a little bit differently. I think most sports, uh, uh, you know, generally speaking, sports is a commodity and you can miss a game without missing much. And, and we'll see what happens long-term with the health impacts and, and the, the role of social justice and, and, and other issues, how long of a tail they have and how much long-term change they affect in the sports business space. But um, I expect those things to have uh, longer lasting effects. Yeah, and I was gonna go there too. Do you think one of those had, and this is just, again, two guys talking here, just I'd love to get your, your thoughts. Do you think there's 
one of those, whether it's the social justice, whether it's COVID, whether it's, you know, rebounding back to a seven from a nine, like you alluded to earlier. Do you think any one of those is really going to have the biggest long term? I mean, for me, like you talked about the indoor sports, it might be the health impact. For others, it might be other things. Is there one that you look at and think that might be the biggest blow to sports in general? Um, no, because I think they're going to have different time horizons. And the third one I'd throw on top of that heap is how rapid technology is evolving such that you really don't need to go to a venue. Uh, and so how does that change the, the way money flows through the sports business world if, if fundamentally you don't need to be um, at a venue? If over time you can uh, pull up the NBA and just watch the gambling feed or watch the hardcore fan feed or uh, watch the courtside angle or what have you. And so I think uh, the overall economic structure is going to change and both social justice and public health and safety in the near term are very important considerations, but longer term is the supply and demand for sport and how does that, how does that change? And again, we talked about fans. You've got some younger fans that, uh, you know, that are all about experiential, you know, the experiential economy and sports and entertainment is no different. And so you better have a venue that addresses their wants and needs uh, you know, fans our age might be less inclined to go and sit elbow to elbow with somebody um, at, a, at a hockey game or, or, you know, some indoor venue for a concert. And so how are the venues going to be adapted? How long does that take? Will it be any public funding for these venues to make sure that they uh, are, are adequate for the new next generation of public health and safety? And so you have some medium term, say for three, four, five year hurdles. And then up against that is changing consumption patterns linked to technology. And I think that's why the industry is uh, so off balance right now, trying to understand how to make those pieces fit. I had coffee one day last week or week before with a close friend of mine who's an executive in the sales industry and sales. Uh, works for a, a, one of our professional sports teams here, uh, locally here in Southern California. And he said that for their team next season, they're gonna keep their tickets flat. You know, there are, there's no seats basically available this year for obvious reasons with COVID. Um, do you anticipate that that's going to be kind of across the board? Are you seeing that the various leagues that since, you know, literally no league is really, you know, football a little bit with some fans. And I know Major League Baseball is going to have some fans at the NLCS and the World Series down in Texas. Um, but that's like 11,000 out of a 50,000 seat stadium. Do you anticipate that most of the teams and leagues will keep their tickets flat? And if so, what's that going to do? Let's go player salaries on down the list. I mean, is there going to be an impact that, that, that they're going to feel? I think there's a couple pieces to that too, Ed, that we're not sure, I think, as an industry, the, the effect that dropping ticket prices or holding them stable is going to actually have on attendance. Because if you fundamentally don't feel safe going to a venue, or you think it's going to be a yeah. huge hassle to get in and out based on screenings and, and, and what have you, uh, a $50 ticket that's now $38 isn't gonna move the needle for you. And, and so I, I don't think the industry has a good idea yet what the relationship is between pricing and getting people to show up. Um, and so yes, you can have another promotional night, but you know what, if I think it's gonna be pretty crowded, I, I really don't need that bobblehead that badly. Mm -hmm. I really don't need that voucher for parking. It, so I, I just, again, I don't think the industry has a, a great idea yet because different fan demographics, older, younger, corporate, uh, you know, think about it. A, a lot, as you know, from your baseball experience, 
uh, a lot of the attendance that would be headed to an Angel or a Dodger game, those are group sales from your large corporation taking people. Well, you know, not sure that that's a viable option uh, the, way, the way it used to be. And so I think these people that keep talking about, well, what's the, you know, when are we gonna get back to normal? Uh, that the sports business world is going to have to create an entirely different framework uh, to, to entice people to consume their product at venue. Yeah, I think you're right. So I think if people even offer, if safety is an issue and health is an issue, free tickets aren't going to get people in the stadium. Because, uh, you know, to your point, I mean, they're going to, it's going to take 15 minutes to screen us going through and it's already a nightmare at a park and leave the ballpark or the stadium or the arena. Um, long lines at concession stands already. But yeah, the, the fear factor that we have is as just citizens of our of our world right now, not just our country, but you know, you know, the sports classes I teach, it's international. The students are from everywhere. I'm hearing the same things from my students in France and Germany and Spain and Japan and South America that, you know, hey, the, the same fears and concerns that are all over the news in the United States are all over the news around the world as well. People don't want to congregate in a stadium with 100,000 people to watch a, a soccer or American football game. But flip the script, the fears and concerns or on behalf of the major events and the teams themselves. Uh, as we suggested, there's no clear pathway to an economic model that works at venue. And then right up against that is their very real concern about litigation. If people get sick and right. things happen. And so, um, you know, those things again are gonna be causing uh, a long, uh, kind of long-term tail in the sports industry with litigation, sponsors wanting to get out of deals, and suing, you know, teams, and uh, so I think it's it's going to have this effect. And you're starting to see sponsors and, and and media companies and others start to reassess their current uh, agreements. And 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 one that got a lot of attention out here in Southern California, as you probably saw, was Under Armour, a big uh, footwear and apparel manufacturer, wanting to get out of their 280 million dollar deal with UCLA. Uh, and and so you're going to see a lot of that. I, and I'm not suggesting whether their approach was founded or unfounded. I'm just suggesting that a lot of colleges, a lot of professional sports teams, leagues, media companies, sponsors, they're, uh, they're scurrying to their legal departments to figure out what, uh, where are they vulnerable and where are their opportunities. And so there's the business component that we're talking about, but right behind there, 1A is business and 1B is probably the legal complications. Yeah, and you hit on something earlier that I've, that I've been just kind of processing prior to this conversation and even deeper now because you said it, and that is just what's the importance of sports going to be? You know, we, we're facing this pandemic. It's easy to say right now when something is so critical, it's hard to picture anything else being this important. Five years from now, when hopefully I'm knocking on wood here, COVID's a thing of the past and everybody, you know, we're, we're you know, there's this next thing coming. There's always something out there, unfortunately. But I'm hoping that we, you know, we will rebound from this and that, you know, we will. I, I miss the days of turning on, even if I'm not at a game, turning on the, the TV and hearing the fans and, and um, you know, just the anticipation and the excitement there. What do you think? Let's take this now to, your, to where you are now. You've been at USC now for, you know, a couple of decades. I think 99-ish, right? It's about when you came to USC. Oh, a few years earlier than that, but uh, I'm aging well, so I'll take that. <laughs> there you go. What do you think the impact on college sports? I, we just heard in the Pac-12, I mean, college football is going now. I've watched uh, bits and pieces of a couple of games over the last few weekends. Um, Pac-12 just announced their modified schedule of six or seven games, depending on whether they may, you know, team makes it to the conference championship. I'm assuming no fans anywhere, right, in the Pac-12. I hadn't heard, but I'm assuming that's the case. 
Well, I, again, I think it, it starts to get complicated. We were just talking about business impacts and, and legal impacts, and now you have to throw in uh, the political component. And, and different states have different mandates, different cities have different uh, uh, procedures, and very difficult to pull off football in a conference that is represented by multiple states, right. uh, varying uh, protocols. And so uh, I think forgetting, I'm, I'm not even concerned about or, or really care that much about the quality of play, which I think is gonna be compromised as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but can you really patch together any kind of a compelling seven game season in, in the Pac-12, for example. Uh, so even if you cared, even if you were one of those big alums or boosters or whatever, um, again, scale one to 10, your excitement uh, six months ago might've been pretty good. Your, your excitement now for your team. And I'm not saying that the season not gonna be legitimate, but uh, I'm not taking any road trips. The, uh, the game's mm -hmm. fun and no fan. Where's the buzz? Where's the hype? Where's everything I look forward to? And and I talked to an executive a, a week or so ago, um, very astute, actually, franchise owner. And he, was, he said to me, when I turn on the TV and I see the, the paper cutouts and, the, you know, the, the, nobody really in the stands and I, I can tell that it's piped in noise, all it does is reinforce to me the fact that things are abnormal. So perhaps in some cases it's having um, the opposite of the intended effect. And when you see some of these college football games, coming out of the Big 12 or the SEC where they're having you know, maybe 20, 25% of the fans in attendance. Even when you see a big game with a handful of fans, I think our, our inclination is to go back to, wow, things aren't quite right. And oh, by the way, there's a game on. Yeah. It's, a, it's an odd dynamic for this year. And so to, this, to think that the Pac-12 you know, I, you know, will we'll get through this without COVID outbreaks, let's, let's say they do. I just, I just fear that a lot of people are saying, we need to protect the amount of money coming into our conferences, to our professional sports leagues. How best do we balance the politics with public health with our business concerns? Yeah, I know that uh, I was probably one of those people saying back in maybe May, June, look, let's just call it a year. You know, we're, we're, let's, let's deal with health. Let's deal with those big rocks in the bucket right now that are the most important, highest priorities. And we'll get back to sports in 2021. Um, I've changed that a little bit because I do, I'll admit, I do love that I can turn on the TV and, and watch the playoffs tonight or watch the NBA finals. It's not must-see TV like it was, and I think a lot of that is either A, Ed's priorities have changed, and Ed is, you know, Miss, you know Joe America now or world. You know, we all are, as you said, our priorities have shifted. But also just um, that crowd noise, like you said, I, what that executive told you I think is very real that, you know, it just reminds me when I see those cardboard cutouts, or I, I'd almost rather hear a ball game with no piped in noise and hear the banter between the players. You know, to me, that, that would, for me personally, that would be more entertaining than piped in noise. But I'm guessing the players don't want that because they'd, they'd like to have a little bit of their privacy too. That, well, that's, that's definitely the case. You'll love this statement, I suppose. But, you know, a lot of people in the industry thought that absence would make the heart grow fonder. And I think what we found is that uh, there's a component of out of sight, out of mind. And, and sports was out of sight and other things were on our mind. Yeah. And, and when you're historically, as everybody said over and over again for decades, Howard Cosell called sports the sandbox of life. You know, the escapism was very important. You can't escape to sports anymore because of the social issues, because of the political and health issues. And, and I think that's, when you roll them all up, I think that's one of the real drags on demand right now is 
people are just up to their eyeballs in controversy and chaos and concern and you can't turn on a ball game anymore. I'm saying it's kind of in quotes, you can't turn on a ball game anymore and just enjoy it. And I think that's because fans are harking back to what, what sports was like five or 10 years ago, whether it was perfect or imperfect, not really my position to take, but yet comparing turning on an NFL game now, seeing announcers with masks on in the booth or players uh, kneeling or stadiums that are half empty or entirely empty, depending on the state, it's, it's just sports used to have um, this privileged place in society. We used to, the academics call it that sports is part of the social fabric of society. And now that it truly is that, that's a little bit less about sport. And yeah. that might be why a lot of people tuned in just to watch the game. Yeah, and you're seeing announcers now announcing from their sofa at home. I know Charlie Steiner, who calls radio games for the Dodgers, is doing it from his living room. And, you know, I know that um, Joe Davis and Oral Hershiser, who do the TV for the Dodgers when the Dodgers have been on the road, they're still sitting in the booth at Dodger Stadium calling it. They're not traveling with the team. So I think maybe it's showing that there might be some things that may – I'm not suggesting that's going to be the case in those two examples ongoing when everybody can be back in the ballpark. But I think on, on the silver lining of all of this, we are seeing that there are certain things that actually kind of do work. Well, that's, I think that's true. You're seeing that in the academic setting. Everybody hates the Zoom sessions, the students, the faculty, yeah. everybody really hates it. Uh, and we're kind of settling into this new normal where, you know what, it's a little bit more convenient. As long as your technology is really functional, then maybe it's okay. But, but you have to pause there and say, no, it's not okay. We're not having the interaction with our students in the classroom. We're not having that personal discussion. We're not developing, as you started the program, mentoring relationships. We're not making ourselves as readily available to young people that might have questions or want to break into the sports industry. Or So it's, it's convenient, but some of the things we've cut out are the, the core value of why we're there. Not going to games or maybe broadcasting it from your couch that's not the same as sitting next to you at a Dodger game and, and me harping on you is why in the world Ed, are you a baseball fan? <laughs> grow out of it at some point. Yeah, you've said that to me before and you'll say it again, I'm sure. I will indeed. And so yeah. the things that, that we've exchanged convenience for some foregone things and those foregone things were the difference makers, whether it's an education or maybe even being able to attend a sporting event with a colleague or a prospective customer and conduct business development. That stuff just doesn't exist. And um, you know, I've, I've joked with some of my colleagues a year or two ago, if someone asked you, would you, you know, would you want to come and sit in our suite or we've got some field passes for, you know, Rams game at the Coliseum, you know, they'd hang up and be standing in front of the Coliseum before you could even say yes. Uh, and today, if that happens, you'd say, gosh, you must not think very highly of me. Hmm. <laughs> How important am I if you're asking me to go to a ball game right now? <laughs> that dynamic alone, uh, is sending people scrambling to figure out how to conduct business development or how to thank employees or how to congregate with your buddies to have a couple of beers and some hot dogs. Yeah, the rising price of tickets and parking and concessions has certainly done well for big screen TVs. I know, uh, you know, <laughs> I have the biggest TV in my house now that I've ever had because <clears throat> I figure not just because I may not be going to a sporting event for a long time, but other, other things as well. So I'd like to dive now, <clears throat> excuse me, go away from COVID for a minute and go away from our current environment and just talk uh, going back in time a bit. You launched this commissioner series that I've had a chance to be invited to every year and attend a couple of times. So thanks for the invites. And I will, you know, I, I do appreciate that. 
can you tell our, our audience a little bit about the commissioner series that you launched, what the impetus behind that was, how that's gone, you know, just kind of the overall takeaway from that series. For those that don't know, you know, each of the major leagues has their own commissioner, obviously, if you're a sports fan, you know that. And um, David's had the chance to bring in, you know, who's who list of the commissioners from various sports to come in and speak to students and the business community in and around USC. And um, I just love to hear how that whole idea started. And uh, to me, it's an amazing event. And how, do, how, how do you get that going? Yeah, we started that many, many, many years ago. And it may even uh, have come up from one of my uh, board members at the Institute, Sports Business Institute at USC at the time, um, which we no longer host. We had that, uh, we shut her down about a year and a half ago now. But it was interesting because there are so many speaker series and it's so hard to get past the, the clutter in a market like Los Angeles. And the commissioners in general, uh, headquartered in New York City, were very available to schools on the East Coast or for you know chamber meetings and so forth. And we knew that, that Southern California, LA was important to them uh, through consulting and otherwise I had relationships with a lot of people in the industry. And we thought it would be a big, a big win in relative terms. Uh, very special in Los Angeles to have the commissioners or the major executives come by and do a one-on-one -on -one, uh, interview with, uh, with me in front of maybe a couple hundred people at a venue uh, at USC. And that grew into a franchise. We started with Bud Selig uh, and, and I believe we ended with Rob Manfred. So we, we bookended it uh, with uh, uh, your two favorite people in baseball, but we also brought in you know, the likes of Adam Silver and Gary Bettman and Lorenzo Fertitta from Ultimate Fighting. Um, we had Peter Uberoff, Mark Emmert, who, ran the, who runs the NCAA right now. And we just had a, you know, a great cast of people that were very willing to be part of it. Even on the media side, John Skipper was running ESPN at the time. And we were very opportunistic. We knew Skip would be in town because ESPN was hosting the national championship game at the Rose Bowl. Well, we're two miles from where he's staying in downtown. You know, why don't you come by? So I think being opportunistic and, and, and reminding them that a strong presence among business people and fans in Southern California is good for their business. And consequently, they would show up. And um, it was really great. It, it, it helped the USC Marshall brand, I believe. It certainly was fun for a lot of folks. And we got a chance to see what a lot of people on the East Coast saw all the time, which were these executives making billion dollar decisions, talking their way through them with us. Awesome. I appreciate that. Yeah, the few that I attended, I really, not only the networking and friends that I have to this day that I met at those events, but hearing the likes of, of some of those commissioners that you alluded to. So you went to Mark Emmert, NCAA, which takes me into not about Mark, but about the NCAA. A lot of news, a lot of my students in the last couple of years have asked me, and I haven't really known what to tell them other than Ed Hart's opinion, uh, which isn't worth a whole lot on this. Um, Revenue sharing with athletes. I know that's a big part of, of what your new venture is now. And I don't know how much you want to or can share about what you're now launching and what, you know, came out this week. But um, talk about your opinion. I'd love to hear your opinion and kind of how that's launched you into where you are now about the, 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 the plus sides or the pitfalls or the concerns with, you know, sharing revenue with, you know, obviously we know if Tom Brady sells you know, number 12 Tampa Bay jerseys now he's going to get a big chunk of that because it's his likeness and so forth doesn't work that way currently in in college sports and I know there's a lot of reasons why 
just open slate here. What, what can you share? What can you talk about when it comes to how revenue sharing should or shouldn't or could or, or couldn't work at the collegiate level? Well, the, the spoiler alert is it, it, it doesn't matter. It's a legal issue and the law is headed in their favor. And so opinions, I don't mean yours, but opinions in the marketplace or other hand-wringing that takes place is, is borderline irrelevant. The NCAA for um, many, many years uh, has been pilloried because of the way they've run the organization. And I think they've run it based on their um, ethics and what they thought was right with respect to amateurism. But clearly over the last decade, the lawsuits that have been coming their way uh, have increasingly gone against them. The results have gone against them uh, with each chipping away each lawsuit, I should say, chipping away at their ability to prohibit athletes from making money from their name, their image, or their likeness. And there have been several major cases over the last many years, and it just seems to me that uh, not only is it inevitable that the athletes are able to profit from name, image, and likeness, but they're going to start doing so next year. And what does that mean for everybody in the industry? And importantly, though, there's two different things. There's profiting from your own name, image, and likeness, which um, allows the individual athletes to do their own marketing deals. That's different than revenue sharing. And some conferences are looking at revenue sharing now that X percent of what the conference brings in will flow to the student athletes as a revenue share. So that's a huge fundamental um, shift, not likely to occur anytime soon, sure. but that really looks like the professional model. In college, it used to be, you're supposed to balance academics and athletics, and that's kind of the amateur model. The professional model was you're in pursuit of a profit. And most people, if you back away from, you know, the hardcore business, the legal impact, you look at it and say, well, college sports, of course, it's every bit the same part of business as professional sports, except the players don't have a union. The players haven't been able to bargain on their own behalf. Um, you know, they're not employees. And so, over the last decade, you've started to see them lurch much more to this professional model. And now in the next, within the next year, you're going to see legislation that allows them to profit from their own name, image, and likeness, meaning the college quarterback can go out and do his own endorsement deal with the local car dealership. Hmm. That raises a lot of questions. <laughs> you know, um, you talked about how the, the, the nil, the naming, image, and likeness are different than the, than the revenue sharing. So let's, let's look at that quarterback at USC or that tailback at Alabama, the Heisman Trophy candidate, who obviously his number is going to be a jersey every kid in America is going to want to wear. And some adults, you know, when are you going to grow out of the fandom, as you just alluded to a minute ago. Um, I'm happy to say I haven't worn an athlete's jersey. I have a Matt Leinert number 11 jersey that a friend gave me when Leinert won the Heisman, and I've worn it a couple of times at SC games. But I think I've grown out of the whole, you know, more physically as well as age-wise, grown out of, of wearing the jersey. But um, talk about the athlete that maybe is the number four woman on the women's tennis team. There's no jersey. There's no, you know, there's no way to associate yourself with that favorite tennis player or that favorite golfer or what have you because there's not a number on their back. How does that – I think you know where I'm going with the question. You know, yeah. the quarterback who has number 18 who sells, you know, millions and millions of dollars of jerseys now can benefit from that. How does that tie into what's being looked at at the college level to make that, I hate to use the word fair, but to make it equitable, I suppose, for the other athletes? Well, I, I think you're, you're 
you're doing or you're, you're thinking through it the way a lot of people have, and it's, it's a little bit misguided. So the starting quarterback at USC is going to have a tremendous amount of competition for marketing dollars from other entertainers and influencers in Los Angeles. Uh, he's going to have a lot of potential uh, competition from UCLA basketball players from wherever else. It's a very, very, very crowded market. The tailback uh, in Tuscaloosa might have a, a much bigger opportunity, depending on if he's the big fish in a small pond, whereas U.S. quarterback's a, a big fish in an ocean. Yeah. Uh, big difference. Uh, and so it depends on the brand of the university. It depends on the size of the market. Uh, and then it depends on the sport. And, and, and most importantly, it depends on the personal brand. We think there's going to be tremendous opportunity for women that are involved in Olympic sports. They have a compelling story. Uh, they have a lot of followers, a lot of athletes, men and women come to college with their own social media uh, posse. And now the ability to make money off of that is very strong. And if they've, from youth on up, been building that and building it well and not making personal branding mistakes, uh, we believe that the gymnasts, the golfers, uh, the swimmers, uh, even on the, especially on the women's side, will have a real opportunity to resonate with a broad market because they, had, they will now be able to get their word out there. And they have a very special story to tell. And, and much has been made the last couple of years about how much money a certain female gymnast that you feel like could have made if this law was in effect and rivaled the top men's players in both basketball and football. And so um, it's not even about equity, it's about uh, opportunity. And, and we see the opportunity very, very small for a lot of the big time athletes. Uh, it, but part of that opportunity for the non-revenue sports or the Olympic sports, we think it could be pretty strong. So if you're a, uh, you know, if you're a, a women's volleyball player in Nebraska, you may have a real chance to make some serious money relative to what your other options are for several years, three or four years in and around Lincoln to include Omaha and elsewhere. And that might be opportunity to make as much money as one of the wide receivers at USC could make. Sure. No, I think that's great. I think that's good. So I think that probably leads into <clears throat> your um, Altia Sports Partners, right? Am I saying that right? Pronouncing that correctly? Uh, yes, you, you are indeed. Yeah. Tell me how that came about. I've read a lot in the last 24 hours about the organization and the founding partners and those that are involved. And you've got, you know, some pretty awesome folks involved, you know, Jessica Mendoza, Urban Meyer, to name a couple of people most have heard of but the business people behind this as well. Can you talk about how this launched and what the, what the objective for Altia Sports Partners is? Yeah, and, the, the, and what I like about it, Ed, among other things, the impetus came from one of my former students. I had the opportunity to teach one class in the law school at USC, mm -hmm. uh, and that individual became uh, the CEO of this new company after spending a number of years at the NFL Players Association. Uh, he began talking to a couple of us in the industry about what did the opportunity look like to monetize name, image, and likeness in college. Uh, he had handled a lot of those kinds of deals for the Players Association. And we took several months and we contemplated where the market opportunity was, uh, where we thought we needed professional support in terms of advisors and uh, what would our market strategy be. And we thought there were a lot of companies out there that wanna make money from athletes name, image, and likenesses. A lot of marketing agents wanna broker those deals. And, and, and they'll do fine with that. Um, but we looked at it as kind of like the old West, 
Those are the guys who are panning for gold. We think we have the opportunity to make money selling the picks, the apples and the uh, uh, shovels and, and, and you know, the blue jeans and so forth. We think that if we can handle that on the back end with consulting for athletic departments and helping them understand compliance and uh, educating their student athletes about personal branding and what it takes, that we can really be that um, top end consulting concern advising not just athletic departments, but potentially at some point, the conferences, and then also brands, big corporate brands that want to get into the space that don't know how to navigate it. We think there's some real opportunities there. So we see it from a consulting standpoint, but not to monetize directly from the student athletes. That, that system already exists. I think we see it again as someone's got to sell the shovels and the overalls and everything else to these, these men and women that are trying to make money off of NIL, and that's kind of our position. I think that's great because you guys are seeing something that's been around in the news for a while and speculation, and it's, uh, I love that you're involved in this, and I love that you've, you've, you guys seem to be figuring out, you're quoted talking about the, the balancing act between coaches and athletes and the corporations and the companies that want to market and so forth. Um, Sounds like you guys are figuring that out. So that's awesome. My, my kudos to, to you and your partners and your associates for, for doing this. I think there's, um, like we've talked about, there's always been the perception of the pros and the cons of, of revenue going to college athletes and so forth. But it sounds like you guys are really surrounding that in a good way. And you've come up with some great ideas to, to make this work. Yeah, we're, we're optimistic. We've been in business now for a little over one day. Uh, <laughs> well, how's business going so far in your first 24 hours? It's going great, actually. Yeah. We signed two major clients in the University of Texas and Louisiana State University, and I think we have several others in the pipeline, so uh, we're really optimistic. But uh, you know what? Uh, part of the fun of launching a new company is just launching it and seeing where it goes. And so there's yeah. no guarantees, but surrounding yourself with a lot of great people has certainly been uh, a lot of fun on my end. Yeah, so that takes me into a, a few more questions here. What What do you enjoy about what you get to do with Altia Sports Partners in this long history of 24 hours? But I mean, David Carter, the sports business executive, the college professor, uh, just in all the different areas of your life, what do you, you wake up every morning and you get excited about what you get to do. What excites you the most about what you do day in and day out? Um, nothing in particular, but everything in total knowing every day, hey, I might have to teach this day. Uh, I, I might have to talk to the media about something else. Oh, that's right. I have to be working on this trial for a few hours today. And at the end of the day, I've got to get, hop on a call with an NBA team, helping them figure out how to restart for next season. And I completely forgot that Altius, we have a conference call where we're, we're, you know, we're pitching Arizona State in half an hour. So the variety, as I mentioned earlier, I think is just uh, really fun for me. And, and not just fun, but it keeps me sharp and focused because I think a lot of it, a lot of executives are worried about one thing and I'm not very good at any one thing, but I see a lot of different stuff. And so I think I have a pretty good horizontal view of how sports business works yeah. and we've got variety as what's been leading to that over the years. Well, as a sports business junkie, like I am, I still read sports business journal regularly and I still, follow the business of sports, probably more. I don't look at statistics and standings and I couldn't tell you who had the highest batting average in baseball this season. I have no idea, but I can tell you the business, how the, how the business is working. Cause it's just, that's something that even though I'm more of a fan now than I was 15 years ago when I was running a team, 
I still have that business sense of sports. And I think part of it might be because I'm teaching it as well. Um, what, uh, what have you learned? I'm, I'm shifting the topic here really fast. I made a statement and I usually should follow that with a question, but I'm going to actually shift back to COVID for one minute before I go into your sports bucket list that you alluded to earlier before we wrap up. Cause I know you have a conference call to get ready for. Um, what have you learned if there's a takeaway or two from this 2020 environment that we're in, whether it's the, the social, whether it's the business side, whether it's the COVID, any, any takeaway that's happened in 2020 for David Carter that, and I get that Altius may be one of those, maybe that was in the, in the works already even before the pandemic, but is there any big takeaway that maybe five, 10 years from now, you're gonna look back and say, man, thank God for 2020 or this wouldn't have happened and I'm a better person because of this particular thing? Uh, boy, that's, yeah, that's a interesting question and a tricky one. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to look back and realize from a, for me, from a professional standpoint, sports was put in its proper place. I've always thought sports is over indexed in terms of the fandom and the craziness and all that. And I get it. People are looking for that, that outlet. And, and I think a lot of our, uh, our interests and a lot of our concerns and disposable time and income have become much more primal in nature. Uh, over the last six months. And, and in some respects, that's probably a good thing to refocus on family, to refocus on a whole bunch of different things. And, and, and you know, having your life revolve around what times the tailgate parties start. Uh, maybe there's something good to be had from that. Um, from a personal standpoint, uh, you know, I, I guess like a lot of people, I don't have a, 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 any real core takeaways yet. It's going to have to, you have to absorb it for, uh, for a while. Uh, to, to, to really get an idea of how you feel about that. I, you know, I'm chomping at the bit to get back out there. Obviously, uh, during a pandemic, we started a brand new company and signed two of the biggest brands in all of college athletics, funded the company, started it, launched it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a tremendous amount of uh, industry participants asking me for consulting advice because there's, there's chaos going on right now. Yeah. And, Chaos is good for my business. Chaos is not good for our personal lives. Sure. So until those two things are kind of in concert, I think we're still going to struggle. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's hard for us to see the lesson while we're still being taught. Uh, I look back at things that happened in my life. The biggest education in my life are things that finished 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. I don't really realize how that experience in 1993, for example, nothing coming to mind, but you know, hypothetically, really taught me. But in 1993, I had no idea that I was in the middle of a a life lesson. So yeah, I know for me, a lot of the same things that you mentioned, I think that we're reshuffling the deck a little bit and reprioritizing some things, whether it's sports or whether it's, you know, a lot of things that just filled our time and occupied our thoughts. So I appreciate that. Yeah, balance. I think it comes back to balance. Yeah, it does. So you alluded earlier on in the conversation. Um, first, before I ask your bucket list, what's the best way for people to reach you with the new venture you're involved with or if anybody out there listening needs advice or needs, you know, you've always been great to, to be a great mentor for me and for my students and so forth. If anybody's looking to either reach David Carter or learn more about Altius Sports Partners, how do they get a hold of you? Oh, email's always best. David.carter at sportsbusinessgroup.com. Perfect. We'll put that in the, in the notes. And um, I'm assuming the website for Altius is, are you okay if I put that up in there as well? Just, is that, I mean, I know the general public probably isn't, you know, accessing that website as much as maybe the teams and the franchises and the organizations, but 
it's certainly, I spent some time on the site last night. It's intriguing. I love looking through it. And maybe that's the sports business junkie in me. I don't know. Hey, entirely up to you. Yeah. Awesome. We'll do that. So last time you and I got together in person, we were talking about your sports bucket list. Um, I know a lot of the things that are on there. I also know a couple of things in 2020 that didn't happen as a result of the pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit, you know, just one or two fun stories, how the bucket list started, things maybe you've done that really stand out and what's out there still on the horizon that you're looking forward to? I'm sure. And uh, uh, Ed, as you know, my, my buddy and I uh, started this list uh, several years ago now. And the, the impetus of it was I had recently completed visiting all the major league baseball stadiums with my daughter. My best friend said, well, why don't we start doing something cool? And uh, over a couple of glasses of wine or more, <laughs> a, a global bucket list for sports. And the premise was, we were both just turning 50. We should do 25 global events before we reach the age of 75, do at least one a year, try to hit every continent, only do one sport for, you know, at a, once you've done NFL football, no more NFL football. Once you've done whatever, you're done. Um, so every continent uh, can't go to the same country twice uh, with the exception of the states. And we have this big matrix of things that we can and cannot do. And so we were six events in when COVID hit. We started uh, with uh, running of the Bulls in Pamplona. We then went to the Iditarod in Anchorage and Fairbanks, Alaska, the world famous dog sled race. Caught a Green Bay Packers Monday night game. We then went to the World Cup final between France and Croatia in Moscow. Uh, we went deep sea fishing off of a private island in Panama, uh, marlin fishing. We followed that up by going to Kona for the Ironman. And then we were supposed to go this last April to the Masters. And as people heard about the bucket list, more people wanted to join. And so for the Masters last April that was canceled, we had seven passes for Sunday, seven walk the course passes for the final Sunday at the Masters. And so that got pushed back indefinitely. Our college football game was coming up, which was the Iron Bowl, uh, Alabama and Auburn and Tuscaloosa. So just events all over the world. We're looking at, at polo in Argentina. We're looking at curling in Canada. Wow. Uh, you name it, we're, we're taking a look at it on a global basis. And, you know, maybe it's Wimbledon and maybe it's uh, Tour de France, Monte Carlo Grand Prix, whatever's out there. We've got a long list. So you need this to end so that we can get back to, you know, them allowing fans to these things. Because these are all things that, yeah, you might be able to do some of these things, but they may not have fans there. So we will only do it if it's uh, the experience that we anticipate it should be. Yeah. We, we if we could have potentially gone to Alabama Auburn this year, what's the point? Yeah, it's that crowd experience that's a big part of that whole thing—the tailgate before and the, the hundred thousand screaming fans and everything else. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's exciting. I love that. I love when you shared that with me. Now, so you've got the the rule of, you know, other than the U.S., no duplicate continents. Um, do you do a couple? Assuming a normal environment again that we're going to get back to, can you do multiple things in one year, or is it one event per year for twenty-five years? Well, I think it just depends on what's, what's coming up that's really interesting. And it might even be an opportunity to do a, what we're calling a double. You might catch the back end of Wimbledon and the front end of the Tour de France. Yeah. Close enough by, you might be able to do this one and that one. So, and then we're all trying to figure out what is sport. Is Oktoberfest a sport? <laughs> uh, so we have, it's, it's sort of like, we, how do you define sports? And when John Daly was smoking and driving a golf cart, people said, well, golf isn't a sport. And so... We have a we we may be stretching our our, our definition. To use a uh, uh, an academic phrase, Ed. We we might have an elastic definition of what sports. Constitute. There you go. 
Yeah. The, uh, Jim Rome used to always say that uh, any sport where you get better as you drink isn't a sport. So, you know, I guess golf isn't a sport for a lot of us because, you know, we're bowling, yeah. definitely not for some. So as your inhibitions go down, your ability to perform goes up in some ways. And I'm not, you know, not doing any kind of promotion for we should drink when we, when we perform in sports. But I know that you know, for some people, when the inhibitions go down, the performance goes up. So, Yeah, Andy, you should just stop talking now. I should have stopped talking. This is the beauty <laughs> of being able to edit, right? Absolutely. We finally found that one thing that Ed's going to probably edit out of the podcast. <laughs> well, Dave, it's, it's just a pleasure to get some time with you. I, you know, this has been a fast hour and, and um, I know for those listening, a lot of my um, colleagues and audience, they love sport. They love the business of sport. Uh, a lot of just average fans are intrigued by the business of it because they're not going to games now and they're tuning in and watching empty stadiums or, or whatever the case may be. Is there anything, here's the, you know, since you're a college professor and I teach a little bit as well, we always have to have an essay question. I have a final question I'm gonna ask you as we wrap. But before the, the, the from the heart essay question, is there anything that you hopefully talked about today that we missed or anything more about any of the topics that we did touch on that's hitting you like, well, I'd really like to expand on this. Uh, the big takeaway for me is we're able to confirm that we are getting together next week. And I'm looking we forward. are. It's on the calendar. Absolutely. Nothing's getting in the way of that. That'd be okay. great. So, well, then, David Carter, as I wrap up my time with you today, and, and thank you again for, for taking the time, especially, you know, a day into the, this new launch of an amazing organization that I'm eager to follow. I'll ask you the same question I ask all my guests. The name of the podcast is From the Heart, to play on my last name. But ultimately, the goal for why I'm doing this is I really want to find out not necessarily what people are doing, because I can see that on Wikipedia or Google, but I want to know more about the why. So again, David Carter, what's in your heart? Wow, being able to, to, to make the sports business world a little bit of a better place, but also really focus on personal relationships, reputational capital, doing the right thing by your colleagues, by your family, by your peers, more important than ever as we sit here in October 2020.